sometimes you need to hit the pause button as a clinician um, and a researcher and say, hang on, this is what my underlying assumption is. We want to be evidence-based practitioners, but in fact, this is just how we should practice. Ethics is every part of every clinical decision that we make. And what it is that we do is we make lives better. Welcome to Speak Up, the Speech Pathology Australia podcast. This podcast series highlights conversations with esteemed contributors in the speech pathology space. We explore key issues in the profession in a short and easy to listen to format. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say. Hi everyone and welcome to the Speech Pathology Australia podcast. My name is Amanda Rooney and I'm a senior speech pathologist working on the acute neurology ward at Fiona Stanley Hospital in Perth. And I'm also one of the WA Continuing Professional Development Committee members for SPA. And I'm joined here today by Jade Cartwright. Welcome, Jade, and thank you so much for talking with me today. Hi, Amanda. Yeah, my pleasure. It's so lovely to be here. So, Jade, a, a bit of background about yourself. You are a speech pathologist, lecturer and researcher in the School of Occupational Therapy, Social Work and Speech Pathology at Curtin University here in Perth. You have nearly 20 years of clinical research experience in speech pathology with particular interest in the areas of dementia, primary progressive aphasia, aged care and person-centred care. And you obtained your PhD in 2015, which explored the psychosocial impact of primary progressive aphasia. And in 2016, you were invited to present the Speech Pathology Australia national tour on the topic of dementia and speech pathology service provision. And finally, in 2019, you were one of the 13 researchers in Australia to be awarded the inaugural Capacity Building in Care Research Fellowship by the Dementia Care for Research Collaboration. So you've been very busy in this space. Mm -hmm. um, so perhaps you could start by telling me a little more about how and why you became so passionate about dementia. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, yeah, so how did I become passionate about dementia? So um, I guess like many of us, I entered the speech pathology course really expecting to work with children. Um, but from my first neurology and cognitive neuroscience lectures um, that were with Catherine Hurd at the time, um, I was hooked. So I was really fascinated by the brain and the incredible way that language is sort of processed and organised, um, how different neurological conditions impact language networks and communication and I think even more importantly how these you know difficulties impact somebody's quality of life. Um, so as a result I was really drawn to working with adults. Um, I was then really lucky to have a placement quite early in my studies at the Neurosciences Unit which is one of WA's primary diagnostic and care services for people living with dementia and in particular younger onset dementia. Um, where I got to see, I guess, the theory that I'd grown to love in practice. Um, my supervisor was Kim Elliott, and I learned so much from her in a really short period of time. Um, she was also fascinated by the brain and equally passionate about her work. Um, and I just learned so much from watching how collaboratively she worked with her clients to identify meaningful goals and to connect with them in such an intuitive and effective way. Um, I think she was really ahead of her time in how she was applying more rehabilitation and more life participation approaches to her work with people with primary progressive aphasia or PPA um, and dementia. 
Um, I do remember one session where um, Kim was working with a client with PPA. Um, she was working to help her communicate more successfully with her hairdresser. So they were kind of role playing different scenarios, kind of using this elaborate mix of communication cards, of scripted phrases, of gesture, this kind of amazing pantomime. Um, and it was just so wonderful to kind of see how present Kim was in those sessions and how she really worked to build up her clients' confidence. So it was such kind of deeply person-centered and relational care in action. And it was really influential on, I guess, my own professional aspirations and the sort of clinician that I wanted to become kind of in the future. So I started to learn from Kim how to see the strengths of someone with dementia, how to unlock their communication competence and how to help them really get around the communication roadblocks that they were experiencing in kind of really creative and novel ways. So finishing that placement, I kind of knew I'd return to the unit one day, which I did. Um, and then that really led into my PhD and also, I guess, has brought me to the sort of clinical work and research that I'm doing today. And so I guess I've got a lot to thank Kim for, um, for really inspiring that passion. That's really lovely to hear those stories about people working on those really functional goals and things that are really meaningful for them in that, you know, role play setting that's so real and powerful. So, yeah. And can yeah, you definitely. tell me a bit more about your PhD research and what you're working on currently? Yeah, of course. Um, so my PhD itself was quite a long journey. Um, I started thinking about my PhD in sort of the mid 2000s um, when at that time we still only recognised two variants of PPA, so the fluent and non-fluent variants. Um, whereas now a third logopenic variant is also recognised and has been added to the consensus diagnostic criteria. Um, so I guess um, I was starting thinking about my research at a time where the research was in its relative infancy and there was really limited treatment evidence at that time. Um, I also went into my PhD a little bit naively. Um, I really wanted to design and evaluate an intervention for people with PPA but I think I quite quickly realised that I just didn't know enough yet. Um, and in particular, I just didn't know enough from the perspectives of people living with the condition, you know, to be able to design a really meaningful intervention. So the project really took me back to basics. So I worked really closely with a small number of people with PPA and their families, really to learn more about the impact that their PPA, that the diagnosis and their language difficulties had had on their lives, kind of how they were accommodating the diagnosis, the sort of coping strategies that they were using, the sorts of challenges they were experiencing, really to kind of help identify gaps in service provision and also to start thinking about priorities for my future practice, um, but while also kind of contributing to the evidence base as well. Um, so I learned so much personally and professionally through this process and I think it really kind of further sparked my passion and kind of commitment to working in this area. Um, one of the participants that kind of really left a lasting impression on me was a lady in her late 70s who had progressive non-fluent aphasia um, and it had taken her nearly three years to receive her diagnosis. Um, she was a highly intelligent lady. Um, she'd always really prided herself on her language and her way with words. So um, she'd been really acutely aware of, you know, that even the earliest changes that were taking place 
in her language system, but she'd been told that it was due to stress or depression, and it took a long time to get that explanation. So when she finally found a specialist who had had that experience with PPA, the diagnosis actually came as quite a relief to have an answer and to, to have found somebody that understood her difficulties. But I guess that was then followed by a lot of grief and shock to learn that it was a progressive condition and that there was no cure or medical treatment. Um, during the, the kind of the three year period that she'd been searching for a diagnosis, um, unfortunately, she'd withdrawn from many of her activities and roles. So she'd stopped working as in a volunteer role where she was teaching computing to seniors because of her difficulty finding words. And she was avoiding social events and it even kind of reduced her contact with her children and her immediate family. Um, she had lots of communication strengths, but she just couldn't see them. So she said to me, I can't talk, I can't type, I can't get on the phone. Um, when I asked her husband how he supported her, um, he said, I place her hand on my knee and I talk to her of love to bring her out of the dark hole into which she falls. And so he was such an amazing support. And they had a really beautiful relationship, but it was almost as if they'd kind of retreated into the safety of their own home. And they hadn't been supported, I guess, to just gently move her out of that comfort zone. Um, they were happy together, but she missed her friends. She did feel socially isolated and, you know, she didn't necessarily want to make those changes. So I really you know, couldn't help but think if the diagnosis had been made earlier, if she'd been linked with speech pathology services earlier, could we have prevented some of those, I guess, more negative coping mechanisms or strategies from developing? Could we have put strategies and supports in place to help her volunteer for longer, to stay connected to her community, you know, to, for her to feel confident, to say hello to a stranger in a coffee shop, which was actually one of her biggest anxieties. Um, so I guess, you know, it was another story that just really impacted on me and motivated me even more to keep expanding services in this area and to do more to really change that social experience of living with dementia and to help people live more successfully. Um, I guess then kind of fast forwarding to today, um, at the moment in kind of more of my current clinical practice, so I'm working with a client with exactly the same diagnosis who was diagnosed earlier and who was linked to speech pathology services much earlier. Um, this gentleman is still having trouble coming to terms with his diagnosis and adapting to some of his difficulties. However, I guess we're really in that window of opportunity where we can help him to adapt, where we can put strategies and supports in place. You know, he's, he's, you know, we've worked really collaboratively with him to set meaningful goals. So we're helping to help him to continue running his own business, to keep running um, fitness classes that he runs, to stay close to his son who's still in high school, and I guess to prevent some of those kind of more negative coping strategies from developing. So in a lot of the work I'm doing currently, it is all about providing those proactive services and really growing the evidence base so we can show the value of our services and kind of most importantly, just to keep learning from people living with PPA um, and other types of dementia as well. Absolutely. I know you don't have to 
tell speech pathologists obviously how important communication is and how much that that when that's not working so well in the case of a progressive condition like PPA that people start to disconnect from their family and their activities and it really has such a massive impact on their quality of life so yeah, yeah they sound like some it's really tailored to the patient and the goals that are important to them yeah 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 exactly. I guess that uh, you probably kind of touched on this already, but um, that you know, why do you think this area of interest is so important to clinicians? Yeah, and I think, like you say, you know, as speech pathologists, we we do really get it. We understand the importance of communication and, and social connections. That is why it should be such an area of interest. Um, and I think while things are improving in kind of the dementia care space and there, there's so many amazing examples of kind of innovative practices emerging around the world, um, but we do know that you know, access to speech pathology and you know, even allied health services more broadly is still quite limited and incredibly variable for people with dementia kind of across Australia. Um, and this is despite you know, the fact there is so much we can offer and despite the fact that the numbers of people living with dementia you know, really is increasing at a rapid rate. So currently we have around 459,000 people living with dementia um, in Australia and it's around 250 new people joining that number each day. So the numbers are significant. And we know that communication and some of those social difficulties are kind of among the most frequent and most challenging problems experienced. And then we also know that we don't get involved early enough that the emotional and social costs can be significant. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it is. It's just really important to see those opportunities and to, you know, to try and, and, and find what we can do to, to help that life participation and to help people stay um, socially connected. Um, and I, I kind of think in, in terms of, of why it's so important and, and I guess that importance of seeing that continuing into the later stages of dementia as well, that kind of irrespective of the stage or, or severity that there is still um, so much that we can do. Um, so I might share just about kind of another project that we've got running at the moment. Um, where we've been really privileged to be working with two aged care organisations at the moment that have undertaken really ambitious culture change projects, um, really looking to transform their culture of care and implementing a Montessori-inspired model of care to enhance the care environment. Um, and the results have just been so inspiring to see what these organisations have achieved in moving towards a much more person-centred and enabling and more relational kind of model of care. Um, one of the, the residents, again, that really comes to mind in this project was um, a, a lady who, for cultural reasons, didn't engage initially kind of with the Montessori way. Um, but gradually over time, she started to get more involved and to participate in the home and the community. So she has later stage dementia, but she started to take responsibility for things like changing the calendar each morning. She started setting the table for meals. She was helping other residents. She was engaging in the Montessori activities that were laid out, like sorting buttons and pencils, showing you know, really visible signs of engagement and well-being. Um, and we've kind of observed these beautiful moments of fun and camaraderie with staff that weren't evident before she moved into kind of the Montessori unit. 
Um, so again, it's just this evidence that we can change, I guess, the social experience of dementia um, and again, just enrich and add value to people's you know, everyday lives. Um, so yeah, I think these in, in these sorts of projects, it's, it's just amazing to see the social benefits really shining through. Um, and again, you know, I guess realising that that's, that is at the heart of what we do as speech pathologists and to know that there's so much we can do to improve communication and connection and to really help organisations move towards these more enabling and kind of relational models of care as well. That sounds amazing. That would make such a huge difference for so many of those patients in those settings and that it's not considering it too late, I guess. Um, to yeah. implement some of those changes and that you can almost see an, a new person emerge that they didn't, the staff didn't realise was there from making some of those changes. Yeah. So that's really lovely to hear. Yeah. Um, and and what's, what's next for you? Um, well, one of the, so I am at the moment um, working on the workshop for, for Speech Pathology Australia that is kind of looking at um, a life participation approach to dementia. So have been working to pull, you know, some of, you know, the cases together, um, really looking at the research that we've gathered over, you know, in recent years and, and exploring kind of the broader evidence base. So that's been really lovely to pull together. Um, so I guess that is, that's immediately next. Um, and we are about to start a new research project. So this is a project in WA in collaboration with Associate Professor Anne Whitworth and Associate Professor Erin Gadecki. Um, so we were lucky enough to receive funding from Dementia Australia and the Dementia Centre for Research Collaboration to trial Narnia, which is a discourse and storytelling intervention. So we're going to trial this with people with PPA and other types of dementia where they're having language or communication difficulties um, that we really hope will generalise strategies to help improve everyday conversations. Um, as part of this grant, we were delighted to receive um, the Dementia Advocates Award, um, where the application was selected by a panel of people with a lived experience of dementia. Um, so it just, I guess, again, really highlights that growing recognition of the importance of communication in dementia care, and also the fact that people with dementia and their care partners, that they are really seeking communication supports and novel interventions. Um, so we're really excited to start recruiting to this study in coming months and again, just further contributing to, to that evidence base. And I guess, um, is there any final take home messages that you'd like to give to clinicians out there working with patients with dementia? Yeah, sure. I guess I no, I could just talk on <laughs> on for ages, um, but yeah, no. Look, I, I hope it, you know that the listeners will take a few things away from our conversation. Um, you know, I, I guess I just really want clinicians to to really appreciate the difference that we can make to the lives of people living with dementia, and in particular, if we do adopt more of that life participation and kind of more of that deeply person centred approach. Um, I would really encourage clinicians to broaden their thinking about dementia and to ensure that they kind of don't carry any of the more outdated myths and stereotypes about the condition. Um, you know, I've been deeply immersed in the dementia literature for kind of nearly two decades and I'm still learning every day. So I think it's such a complex and rapidly changing field, um, yet it is one that, that does just bring so many rewards. 
Um, so I do really encourage clinicians to kind of see the potential in the area and you know to, to seize those opportunities that are arising to really look critically and systematically at their own services and see where kind of things could be done differently or where innovation could be introduced just to help you know, connect people with dementia to their communities and to ensure that we're empowering and enabling them to continue to engage and to you know to continue to be part of of their of their everyday activities and roles. Um, so I think, you know, we are such a creative and, and dynamic profession and I think we, we do have so much to offer. Um, so we shouldn't ever lose sight of the importance of communication. And I think I just hope this really inspires more speech pathologists to kind of become those dementia champions and just really help drive change um, into the future. Mm, absolutely. Oh, thank you so much, Jade. I think everything you've shared in your ongoing research is really relevant to all those clinicians out there working with patients with dementia of which we know there's an increasingly growing number um, and really grateful for you for sharing some of your time and your amazing knowledge with us today so thank you very much yeah that's my pleasure thanks so much amanda we hope you enjoyed this week's conversation remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues thank you for listening and bye for now